Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we are talking about canceling. I want to address like the sentiment of like, what what does it mean when we cancel someone? Like, what do you think, Lisa, we're saying when we say like a person is canceled? I mean, when it happens on social media, I think it's a fantasy of power to ostracize somebody or to silence their ridiculousness or their unethical ideas or whatever. So I think it's fundamentally a fantasy of power to silence. I think it works mostly from the position of people who feel aggrieved, but not always. And I think it's perceived by people who do have power as having more I guess, material power than it does have. So I don't think people who are quote unquote canceled ever actually get canceled. Like JK Rowling is a turf and people are still gonna read her shitty books, right? She's not actually canceled. Like, okay, Trump didn't win re-election, but nobody's gonna silence his ass. He's not gonna be canceled. I guess to me, canceling doesn't actually have these long-term detrimental consequences so much as they create space for the aggrieved party to weaponize their speech further and to portray themselves as victims. So I think it's part of this like, you know, scapegoating victimage language that is part of neoliberal authoritarianism. I think it's a feature of that kind of politics that is inextricable from the way that power is wielded against huge swaths of people who are powerless. So I, I actually doesn't, I don't think it actually has like serious material consequences. I think it just augments the rhetorical possibility for people in power to portray themselves as victims. I I think it's both. I think there's like two sides of the coin when it comes to canceling. Like in some ways, I think it can be like a way to build solidarity or a way to like push uh, values into the forefront and to accelerate change and create norms around behave like what behaviors are and are not acceptable but i also think that it can be a way to like shame or it can lead to doxing it can escalate kind of out of control even if people in power don't ever actually lose power but on the other side of that i do think canceling folks can encourage a reactionary response like a kind of backlash where like people who defend the person, the offender, um, just frame them as a victim. And like they frame the call out, the people who are doing the calling out as like they frame it as mob rule. So it can it can work to undermine the point. Yeah, I think call outs in general are shitty politics for like regular people who don't have like elected power or who don't have like hardcore organizational power. I think that they're a bad way to manage inequality. Um, And I think for one reason is one that you pointed out is that the A goal of call out culture is shame. 
which, you know, I think is like the worst emotional tool for changing behavior. It's really sticky and noxious. And, you know, the longitudinal empirical studies of shame demonstrate that people get lodged even deeper into their ideologies when you use shame um, because they're, you know, politically weak. So I don't think shame as a tool is very useful, especially for bad faith actors. Like you can't shame Ben Shapiro. You can't shame him. Like he did his shameless, right? Because he lives in an alternative reality where he's king. So it's that's not a useful thing to produce in the public sphere, uh, unless it's caricature. And so I think caricature functions as call out culture that's like more sophisticated than like shouting at people on social media, because the artistic renderings of accountability are more legible and the critique of the artwork is, is less legible. So I think caricature is a good way to manage calling out in a way that's not the same as just weaponizing my persona on the internet versus your persona on the internet, which I think is mostly trash. I do think, though, that the inevitable backlash on call-out culture and canceling is one that is rooted in a need for this language of civility and tone policing and moderation and, like, real milk toast citizenship practices that I think is shitty, for sure. So I don't, I don't think even though I think call-out culture is not effective, I don't think the antidote to it is civility, you know? I don't think that we all have to have like lukewarm tones to get shit done. Cause obviously I think rage is an important political feeling. I wrote a whole book about it. You know, I think guilt and shame work together to expose rifts and shitty ethical practices, especially on the left, but also on the right. I think I think a lot of things about the way that we harness accountability, but I don't think civility is the way to produce more accountability. I think it's a way to skirt accountability. Part of why this is a hot topic is just like the way that the internet works. You can shoot off a, a tweet that you just thought about five seconds ago and it can spread like wildfire. And so like you can have like a reaction to something, um, a negative reaction to someone that is perfectly valid, but then it can spread and it can stay like permanently on the internet. And I don't think that thought goes into that. Like what, what is the scope of this going to be? Like, you don't really get a say in that actually. Um, and then you have people who are accountable to strangers who have never met them. And so the dynamics of the internet, I think definitely like <laughs> make canceling a more complicated thing. It does lack nuance because a lot of times, you know, things are shared without like people fully understanding the nuance of the situation or like what uh, is happening. Like what are, who are the characters involved? Why are we canceling people? <laughs> like what are the specifics of the situation? Um I don't even know if civility is possible on the internet. <laughs> like it, it just doesn't have the viral like impact that um, canceling does. So like in what ways can we distribute information and hold people accountable that aren't like <laughs> inflamed by like the echo chambers on Twitter? Part of it is a maturity thing, like political maturity. So the country is 300 years old and everybody's, emotionally 10 
inside about their politics, right? Which is why nativism and populism go hand in hand here. Everybody's politics are really baby-ish. So part of it is I think just a lack of political maturity um, that the internet facilitates for sure. But I think I love Twitter because I'm ex I, I love to be exposed to the way that people are working out ideas when they're good faith thinkers. So I like, I love threads where people are working out ideas, about, especially about power, but about other things too, or where they're sharing expertise. So I find that aspect of Twitter in particular to be really democratizing. But you're right that the internet facilitates idea cycles that are really truncated and short and that hype really intense feelings about people as individuals. And that's probably trashy. It's trashy. You know, if you're on the internet and you say anything even remotely controversial, you've certainly been subjected to this sort of thing. But I'm always sort of surprised at, at the folks whose, you know, hobby is just like raging at rando humans that they don't know about shit that do, does not actually concern the other person. And I don't know, it just, that just strikes me as political immaturity more than it is the internet, except in the way that like Facebook is fascist. Like obviously they promote alt-right shit intentionally. So there's clear accountability there, but in spaces that are not driven by algorithms of profit off of anti-blackness for neo-Nazi shit, I think it's a little more, bit more complicated. It's interesting because I've been talking to some boomer people in my family who are like, I hate cancel culture, you know, it's all this PC stuff, I hate it. And I'm like, I would like for you to define cancel culture to me and I would like a list of people who have actively been canceled. So like, who, <laughs> do you, who does this apply to in your, so the boomers have a fear of cancel culture, which makes me think that it has some utility even though I'm trashing it sort of in this, in, in this episode. Because if they're afraid of it, they mean they know that it has some accountability for them and it they want to avoid that because they don't want to do serious, you know, hard evaluation of their own trash ideas. So, you know, in one sense, I think then perhaps it does have some relevance, but not if it just collapses into critiques of identity politics, which are obviously trash. Like it's, it's not helpful to just produce standpoint theory without any like empirical data. And I think a lot of the cancel culture is just like, well, I, that's not my life experience. So it's not real, right? Like, I don't know what you're talking about because that's not what I live. That is unhelpful. <laughs> yeah. Super unhelpful. So your personal standpoint, like if that's how you think the world works, let me tell you about eyewitness accounts at crimes because it turns out that they're just racist trash that have nothing to do and no bearing on the situation at hand. I feel very ambivalent about call-outs, even if on base, I think they don't have a lot of political utility. If you think about canceling and like the people who hate cancel culture, a lot of those people do plenty of canceling themselves. They just like, don't call it the same thing. They're like, oh, the social justice warriors are so sensitive, but like, don't let trans people in my bathroom. <laughs> um, and I honestly think the freedom of speech argument that the right makes about um, cancel culture, where they're like trying to stifle um, like the free exchange of ideas is honestly shit. <laughs> Public and private institutions both have the right to decide what ideas like they 
are and are not willing to entertain. And like, I don't think you're working against the First Amendment if you're like a privately owned newspaper that decides not to publish like a certain editorial or like if you're Facebook and you want to put um, content warnings on misinformation. I don't actually think misinformation is defended by the First Amendment, right? Like, I don't think it defends. No, it's definitely not. There are limits to free speech, like libel. So like, how is saying that Joe Biden stole the election and publishing it, like right-wing outlets that publish that, how is that not libel? It is. So like- No, but I would say that it's, it's the backbone of the history of journalism in the United States. So, you know, in colonial America, you would get the newspaper that spoke exactly to your ideology. It's not like there were newspapers that sought to find some external truth. They just told you the shit you already believed. So the idea that the objective press is historically the basis for news in the United States is just not, not true. So it's, that's a fantasy of objective reality that's not been the case in the United States. I would say too that I think the bigger problem is that the country is so cosmopolitan and so polyglot. There are so many different kinds of people here. And so there's a struggle over the meaning of reality because we don't all share the same experiences. So in countries that are like monocultures, like say Iceland or Japan, that have really low rates of immigration, that don't accept refugees, that are pretty homogenous, there aren't these debates over like reality because everybody shares a pretty similar subject positioning. In the case of Iceland, they're all white Iceland, you know, Icelanders. They all come from the same like, you know, stock of humans. They all share perspectives on things that are pretty homogenous. And in this culture, because it's so built upon colonialism and slavery and other forms of exploitation, then people have different perspectives on things like power and representation and citizenship and governance. And so you're going to have massive conflicts over notions of power. It's inevitable. It, it's predictable. It's structural. You know, it's, it's not going to go away. And so, you know, I just don't, outrage is a non-sustainable political emotion. It comes in short bursts. It's staccato. It, you cannot elongate outrage. It'll burn itself out. It'll burn you out. So it's not a super useful political emotion, but I think it's the emotion that gets captured by cancel culture the most. So it does the most harm in the shortest amount of time. It's like a Tommy gun outrages so you can get a lot of shots off in a really short amount of time and you can see why a gun culture likes outrage because it feels staccato right like it's a mass shooting of emotions in this way and it appeals to their need for quick retribution and vigilante justice and all of these other ideas circulating about how you right a wrong in this culture especially if you are the party in power and I don't mean political party. I mean, just like the person who's, in, who's of the group in power. So, so like, um, I am a Ralph Nader stan, but like back when the internet was expanding, he led this campaign to get like new top level domains for consumer advocacy purposes. So he wanted to like have the dot sucks domain. Um, so you could buy like, 
mcdonalds.sucks or like apply to get it and that could be like a consumer advocacy site where people like can wage like both labor complaints and (laughs) employment complaints online so like I, i think he did this before he realized like how toxic like discourse like that on the internet could be but and i also don't think like that is the right approach where like <laughs> you have like this outrage that gets translated into like trashing something online like i think putting resources behind collective organizing and like putting resources behind labor organizing instead of outrage like how do you create systematic accountability like actual accountability because you as a like single voice on the internet that may or may not spread, that is not the right approach to get accountability. So like, I, you know, having better regulatory institutions like that monitor businesses for bad practices is better. Like how do you divert your resources there? Like, and not into forums of outrage. Yeah, I am totally not a Nader stan. However, I will say that the dude did a lot of creative, like large scale thinking about commerce and intellectual property and global governance uh, at the turn of the millennium in ways that none of his contemporaries were doing. So there is no AOC without Nader. Like there just isn't. And Bernie, I think, radicalized with Nader, you know, at certain periods of his political career in ways that are non-negligible. So I like Ralph Nader as somebody who is trying to propose large scale, like solutions to problems that people were not talking about or thinking at the time. So I, I totally agree with you that there is space for that kind of thinking. I, I think that Nader's problem is that he, he could not see how antagonistic the U.S. itself was to creating structures of global governance that would be focused on justice. So in some ways, he had the same sort of problematic assumptions about U.S. exceptionalism that are endemic to most U.S. politicians, but his weren't uniquely so. You know what I'm saying? But I do think that there is, if we think about accountability I think we're the only ones who think about cancel culture as accountability. (laughs) I think people see it as immediate retribution in a very short idea cycle where somebody needs to be punished for something that they said or did. And I don't, I don't know as a long-term strategy in thinking about how we want to view human behavior, do we want to cancel them or do we want to reeducate them? You can cancel Trumpism and say, well, we don't, you know, we don't want Trumpists in government, but you're living alongside of 50% of the population who are down for the cause. So who is going to go, we're just going to cancel them, what, force them into parlor and off the internet, and then what? They're still going to become your cops. They're still going to shoot people. They're still going to, they're still going to do all this heinous shit. So it does not make sense for me to think about canceling people as any kind of way of ameliorating structural dominance or oppression at all, because you still have to live alongside of these assholes who are fascists. That is not retributive at all. And it's definitely not restorative justice. Those people need resources, right? 
And even if they can't all be flipped, that is, you, we cannot, the country's gonna continue teetering on this 50-50 split in perpetuity, which is just gonna be exhausting. I do think it does serve some purpose. Like there are problems that aren't going to be addressed by law or by formal politics. Um, but I think canceling can sometimes serve the purpose of like banding together people to make like shared grievances. Mm, um, I agree. I agree with that. That's smart. And defend certain values. So I think like it's totally right to express like outrage at a culture that's right of center and that's like producing violence um, and sustaining systematic inequality and injustice. And I think sometimes certain in certain instances, people using that the kind of language around cancel culture are trying to ex- accelerate progress because the justice system won't. It's different. Like I think about JK Rowling, who's an asshole and a turf. And so I'm not going to buy her shit. That's a boycott, not a cancel. Right. So the thing that happens on the internet is like, hey, you fucking hate trans people. You're a fucking bigot. Stop being a bigot. Here are ways in which you are trying to exclude trans people from the social world that you inhabit, that you wish other people inhabited and from a political reality that you you know, benefit from structurally. Here are ways we understand that. That is not about canceling JK Rowling, even if it's a fantasy. It's about educating other people about why the stuff that she says is so fucking heinous. So there, that's, there's educational value in saying, JK Rowling says this turf garbage. Here's why it's garbage. Here's who it harms. Here's how it builds structures of exclusion that build her own white lady privilege that make her a fascist. Like that is an educational structure that you can mobilize as educational resource. That is not canceling to me. That is opportunity to reframe people's feelings into political harm. And that is the work that has to be done to transform white people for sure, I think. As like an act of solidarity, as you're saying, that is how you, that's how you mobilize personal grievances. This lady said a shitty thing on the internet that hurt me into, you know, political stances about justice, you know? Yeah, I think you're right that that's an important distinction. Like, I think the motivation has to be progress and not ruining someone's career or i just don't think it can be ruined the bad white people get away with all of the things because they've already had enough capital that they they never have to have a hard landing because we allow people to accumulate such gross amounts of wealth if you want real cancel culture cancel the fucking billionaires that's what i want i want them to be canceled it's outrageous that Mackenzie bezos can you know spend billions of dollars a minute for the rest of her life and never run out of the money that she got in her divorce from Jeff. Like that's an insane amount of capital to wield as individual power. It's grossly unethical. Cancel billionaires. It shouldn't be up to one guy from Vermont to explain to people how they are getting screwed over by their employers, even while they bitch about being underpaid. It cannot be one elected official from one of the smallest states in the country out trying to explain why people are being exploited around wages. It cannot be one person's responsibility to do that. So if you want to think about how how um, people can manage their you know position in the bottom of our class caste system, it has to be a collective effort to redistribute the wealth. 
and to brand it as socialism i don't think that bernie's politics are that radical i also don't extreme that we have the level of accumulation of wealth at the top like that is what is extreme the fact that we've sold capitalism as this like great equalizer and that most people are honestly struggling there are not that many people who are thriving as a result of capitalism but this is where the party system gets jacked because the democratic party does not want to abandon capitalism even though they want the people who are getting fucked by it the most to vote for them the most i mean it's like you cannot have both of the things you cannot be the the team that wins all of the time with the poors and also not divest from capital in ways that really produce accountability as a corporate or individual thing as a structural facet of american public life you cannot have both of those things and i think that they're like well yeah we win some we lose some but at the end of the day we don't have to give up our wealth either and that's why they they get you know pilloried as hypocrites and if they're and it's not wrong to pillory them as hypocrites and it's not it's not like some just fantasy to think that they should have different standards to understand how wealth accumulation produces injustice. But then to go beg for people of color to save them in the South in races where black people have been fucking destroyed by the democratic political machine always is just madness to me. It is, it is the most entitled ass shit to think that black voters should save the democratic party in Georgia. I mean, fundamentally, the Democratic Party is owned. It is impossible to present progressive ideals when you're owned by the corporations that would be hurt, you know, by those ideals. And um, it's really a shame. There is just so much consolidated power that it feels like (laughs) there's, I feel like I have no wiggle room, you know, like I have no space to uh confront that system um in a way that results in any kind of impactful change any kind of change that actually affects like real people's lives well you and i were talking a little bit about the notion that your business is your family like the your place of work is your family and how shitty and corrosive that metaphor is and it's like when you say, you know, this is your family, then does that mean the boss is your daddy? It definitely does. You know, so it's like reproducing all of the like worst aspects of homonormative, you know, trashy heterosexual family discourse inside of the workplace as a way of maintaining fealty and obedience, which is super gross. But I think about that as I think about the politics of accountability and about you know how do we change people's perceptions about how well they're really doing and it seems to me that you know the gaslighting that we're experiencing in the trump administration is the same as it's always been like america is the nation of greatness and you know and joe biden will get elected and and we'll just um you know we'll go back to normal and we'll be great again whether MAGA makes us that or Biden makes us that it's all the same fantasy it's just which team wins you know yeah and I think I think there is like a myth that incremental economic policy and like individual determination 
is going to move the needle. It's not going to be solved with Pete Buttigieg as the transportation <laughs> secretary. Like it's. And you know, he got pretty, he proposed in an airport. So he's qualified. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that, but. <laughs> That's what he said in his, in his nomination speech this week. Really? You know, yeah. Charming. Charming. Mayor Pete. I don't even mind that he's just like a total sociopath, right? That's like the least of my problems with him, actually. But I just think that giving your cronies the jobs undermines the argument that you're in it for the ideas. And so the performative contradiction of that will continue to bite the Democrats in the ass, even though it's the way that politics are done. Right, so whether it's John Kasich, who everybody knows I think is trash, I'm from Ohio, you know, or any other random assortment of assholes, right? Whoever gets those jobs, who's the loyal, you know, I, I guess um, in Pete's case, bulldog, you know, that undermines the notion that the, they're the party of ideas instead of just cons. Yeah. And it's not that Pete himself is not... A just generally a competent kind of human. It's about undermining the idea of expertise in the middle of a fucking pandemic where, you, where you're trying to reinstall confidence in like the CDC because of expertise. So the Democrats have an ambivalent relationship with expertise. The GOP has no relationship with expertise. I'm not sure that the Democrats are, you know, on the whole better at it than not, but watching them shoot themselves in the foot about expertise of any kind is just maddening. One thing I loved about um, Mayor Pete's campaign was like how hard Twitter came after him, especially Twitter on the left. And I think they completely kneecapped his campaign. Like that does show <laughs> that there is, uh, you know, an, a space to change the outcome of course we ended up with biden but um a lot of that it wasn't call out it wasn't cancel culture it was ridicule right it was caricature. Um, caricature. that's the way to go that is the stronger political move every time about elected officials is caricature and not call out it is a it is a more sim symbolically dense field to manage really complicated feelings of, of ambivalence about political figures who are not like you and who won't re represent you. And just like the general conundrum of citizenship in a heterogeneous you know, population. And I, I think it's the way to go. And I think you're right that they did kneecap his campaign, yeah. but also he's a small town mayor and he was not yeah. gonna be president and he was young. And so, you know, youth is, we also have ambivalence about youth in this culture. This culture hates young people, it hates children. It doesn't value young people or youth. I mean, we had one moment with Kennedy and then now we've got these, this boomer generation that did not accomplish any of the robust ethical things and challenges of their times. They yeah. didn't do shit, so. One thing I'll say is I also don't think it pushed him left at all. Like I don't- No, definitely not. While I think it like educated a lot of people about the kind of politician that he really was, like he did not change at all as a response. And, you know, there were a couple of times he made some like shitty racist tweets and he would just delete them and not apologize. So it's like- This is where Bernie does better because he's a white Jewish fellow who can admit that he's wrong yeah. and he can learn 
and who can interact with a bunch of people that are not at all like him and he can listen to them and he can integrate their perspectives. I mean, he's just a more mature human. Again, given all of his faults and also, you know, it's not like there couldn't be other, you know, political leaders who have flexibility, adaptability and listening as skill sets in their repertoire, but the white people do not have to develop those skill sets because they need to win at all costs because they're so fragile. And the, and that's why you're going to see more leaders develop out of communities of color. They've always had more interesting leadership philosophies and understandings of power and collaborative frameworks for understanding, you know, how to survive and how to thrive. And the white people don't have that. They've never had to develop the creative solution. So they're going to cop out with cancel culture instead of creating more just and equitable organizing to help change the entire political structure because they're lazy and they don't want to leave their computers because they're mostly middle-class assholes. And that is a class thing. And it's a commitment thing. And they don't really want the culture to change. They want to be socially rewarded for saying witty things on the internet. And I'm here for wit, I guess, as a general rule. I Obviously, you and I thrive in the humor space. But I don't expect to be rewarded for it. I'm only ever going to be punished. So... You know, it's not like it's not like it's an end in of itself. So I guess for me, I just think that the calls about cancel culture are overblown and they whether they're from the left or the right, they come from a really insecure political place that is a substitute for more ethical and um, I don't know, philosophically dense positions that build deeper benches and better organizing structure, both in electoral politics and, and on the social justice side in terms of mutual aid and movement politics. What about a different kind of online communication? Like something that uh, intends to build solidarity, like the Me Too movement, for example. I mean, that is a perspective on the Me Too movement that I, I don't necessarily share. I don't, I don't know that organizing happens much on the, the internet at all, actually. As somebody who works in politics, the, I think the most we can say about how to organize on the internet is how to democratize access to ideas. So one thing that's happening because of COVID is that people have more access to online speakers and, you know, ideas that they didn't have time or access to otherwise. And I think that is really good for organizing because you can get ideas out to much larger groups of people and much more cheaply than you could otherwise, but you're not doing the interpersonal relationship building that is necessary for social movement organizing to thrive because you can't do the intimacy and the personal stuff, like the, especially the somatic things, the hugging, the handshaking, the nodding, the eye contact, you know, the nonverbal communication, all of that is, there's a paucity of that. So the ideas I think are moving more rapidly and people should think consciously about that, but the relationship building is trash. You can be vulnerable in a tweet, but like not in a way that is really intimate. You can do transparency on the internet and you can do personal vulnerability, but I don't know that it's not building coalition at all. It's performative. And I mean, call it culture is performative. In some ways it's virtue signaling. It's trying to showcase wokeness or, you know, some social awareness. But again, it just seems so politically immature. If I thought that it was good faith and it's like, oh, we're going to have a serious conversation about the limitations of the online forum and really investigating the complexities of whatever, 
then I would do that. But I just think that the people who do the call outs are so shallow that there's, that's not a serious good faith effort at either building or seriously destroying, you know, shit that's in your way. It's, it's not good faith. And, you know, that's even when the target is a dick or a fascist or whatever, like even when the target is so clearly terrible, I don't think that the callouts are productive except as consumatory rhetoric for the person who's doing the calling out. That's your own ego. You're not like building something new or adding something to the larger conversation and your shit on the internet isn't going to last anyway. So even though it's there in perpetuity, the conversation does not continue. Like there's no futurism to it it's hyper presentist which strikes me as just some narcissism you know i think that's why i prefer the people who are like i'm trying to work out these ideas come along with me if you want to to the you know to the i'm gonna go into other people's spaces and just shit on random strangers you know as a strategy of engagement because i feel like it's more good faith to be like here are these are ideas that i'm thinking about think think with me that seems like a good faith thing, you know? Yeah. And I'm seeing more and more of that content. And maybe it's because the algorithms, like that's the kind of content I prefer to engage with too. So it's like the algorithms are showing me that. I mean, I just, if, if you're just focusing on the individual, then you're just producing, you know, cult of personality politics. You're not actually transforming people's ideas about how things are right which is why the jk rowling example i think is useful because it's like i mean she's going to sell her books no matter what you say so the question is how do you want people to perceive what she says and how she says it right and why is it important to call out that kind of low-key soft bigotry from people who make their money being creatives that there's value in that but that's different to me than like you know just randomly trolling you know people in your community for saying casual shit on the internet does not seem to be a good use of time so anybody who thinks that just like trolling randos in the in the community for stuff that they say online is like politics is i mean that's self-aggrandizement at best you're not doing politics you're just shouting at people with no context or relationship. If they don't have a relationship with you, they're just going to be like, fuck off as they should rightly. So because those people are bad faith actors and don't want to build with you. And I think stuff that is done with the intent for solidarity, like the me too movement. I, I do think that's important. It is an exercise and, you know, bringing to light how common sexual assault and sexual harassment is and then folks feel encouraged you know that they have that common ground if you can't do things to redistribute power you're never going to change rape culture ever in any way that's even remotely significant so there's no like critique of sexual assault that isn't completely hinged on capital and property and so you know me too created some solidarity but i don't know that it created you know movement it created some people who are like, I too was sexually assaulted by these terrible trashy folks. But then it was exclusionary about trans people and queer people and black people and children and men. I mean, it's so, it, the internet cr- 
delimited the possibility for me to to have more coalitional power than it did. And it did so because the people who are participating wanted it to, and the internet facilitated that. And I mean, that's, that's I think, a constraint. But at the end of the day, if, if you're not having personal relationships with the folks that you want to be in coalition with, you're not going to build a movement. You're going to build a hashtag. And that's what Me Too did, is it built a hashtag. And a lot of people shared their stories. And yes, narratives are important, but they are not in coalition. They're not building you know, because they're misidentifying the problem, which is property and access to political rights. The problem is not sexual assault, that's an action. The problem is who has access to the power to be able to get away with it without accountability. And the internet facilitates that for the folks who weighed in on Me Too as well as for the ones who perpetuated sexual assault. So, you know, I, I just, I don't know that the internet is a place where accountability is really strong. And I think it's best to think about it as a space where we can think through new forms of ideas and find other folks who want to talk about those ideas with us. But as an organizing tool, it's best as a calendar, you know, and creating groups to meet in person. And that's the way that the thing is going to move forward. So I just think that people who like to internet use the internet as a substitute for politics. And that's what what's limits our ability to think through complicated things and build a better ethic. Yeah, the internet gives you a voice, but not power. And it makes you lazy. 